Pop quiz. What microbe once led to the infection of 15-20% to 20% of the Egyptian population as a direct result of what was supposed to be a public health campaign? This bug is a silent killer that sneaks up on its victims for 20 years before presenting itself. If you guessed hepatitis C, then you'd be right. Hepatitis C was first discovered in 1989 and was identified as the cause of what was then called non-A, non-B hepatitis. It is a bloodborne virus which is now most often transmitted through intravenous drug use. Before its discovery, infection was more commonly due to iatrogenic transmission from contaminated blood products, surgical tools, transplanted organs, and hemodialysis. One extreme example of iatrogenic spread occurred in Egypt between the 1950s and 1980s, where mass treatment campaigns for schistosomiasis using reusable needles led to infection of approximately 15-20% to of the Egyptian population. Today, our patient has hepatitis C, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled A Viral Delay and is all about hepatitis C. Now, time for a minute physiology. Hepatitis C is a positive sense single-stranded mRNA virus in the flavivirus family. It is one of the five unrelated hepatitis viruses named for their effect on the liver. Hepatitis C can cause liver damage through multiple mechanisms. It causes chronic inflammation that activates hepatic stellate cells. This then leads to production of various signaling molecules, which induce fibrosis of the liver. Hepatitis C also induces programmed cell death, or apoptosis, in hepatocytes, and the remaining apoptotic bodies stimulate fibrosis. Eventually, this fibrosis can consume enough of the liver that damage is irreversible and results in the development of cirrhosis. At this point, liver function can be impaired, leading to poor production of hormones, clotting factors, and albumin. Cirrhosis also increases intrahepatic vascular resistance, leading to impairment of blood flow through the portal circulation, resulting in portal hypertension. The liver compensates for portal hypertension by development of collateral blood vessels between the portal and systemic systems, such as gastric or esophageal varices. Chronic liver damage by hepatitis C leads to increased turnover of hepatocytes, which can accumulate mutations over time and lead to the development of hepatocellular carcinoma. natural history of hepatitis C is different from the other hepatitis viruses. Rather than causing acute fulminant infections such as seen in hepatitis A and B, hepatitis C is known for chronic infections which can lead to cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma over time. About one-third of those infected will clear the virus within three to six months, while the rest will develop a chronic infection. Those who clear the virus neither develop long-term complications nor need treatment. Of those with a chronic infection, 20% develop cirrhosis in 20 to 25 years, and they have an even higher risk if they are obese, drink alcohol heavily, or are co-infected with HIV. 
Patients with hepatitis C cirrhosis then go on to have an annual risk of hepatocellular carcinoma of approximately 5% and a 30% risk of end-stage liver disease over 10 years. Patients with chronic hepatitis C are also at risk for extrahepatic manifestations of this disease, such as cryoglobulinemia, nonspecific autoimmune symptoms, glomerulonephritis, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, monoclonal gammopathies, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Between 1960 and 1992, it is estimated that 90,000 to 160,000 Canadians were infected by hepatitis C through blood transfusions alone, many of whom were transfusion-dependent people with hemophilias. Less common modes of transmission are vertical transmission, affecting approximately 6% of babies born to hepatitis C-infected mothers, sharing of blood-contaminated household objects such as nail clippers and razors, getting tattoos or body piercings, and sexual transmission. Once thought to cause a large proportion of infections, sexual transmission is in fact much less common than previously thought, with a transmission rate of only 1% in a cohort of 500 hepatitis C discordant monogamous heterosexual couples observed over three years. This mode of transmission is more significant in men who have sex with men, where HIV co-infection can lead to increased transmissibility and faster progression of disease. Other important risk factors are being a healthcare worker or having traveled to or resided in a hepatitis C endemic country. In Canada, between 0.64 and 0.71% of the population are infected with chronic hepatitis C, many of whom are undiagnosed. While a recent recommendation by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force has stated that all adults of age 18 to 79 should be screened at least once for hepatitis C, the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Healthcare's recommendation does not line up with this and states that only patients at elevated risk should be screened. However, the Canadian Association for the Study of the Liver adds to this by stating that all adults born between 1945 and 1975 should be screened at least once, since iatrogenic exposure was common during this period. Now, how might a patient with hepatitis C present? The presentation for hepatitis C can be variable and will depend on the length of time from the original infection. Patients with advanced hepatitis C may present with signs of advanced liver disease, which should be evaluated. On physical exam, these signs include signs of portal hypertension, such as ascites, hemorrhoids, caput medusa, and splenomegaly. Further, signs of dysfunctional hepatic metabolism, including jaundice, hepatic encephalopathy, and asterixis, might also be present. Signs of hyperestrogenism from reduced estrogen breakdown include spider angiomas, palmar erythema, testicular atrophy, and gynecomastia. And signs of reduced hepatic synthesis of albumin and coagulation factors, resulting in peripheral edema and purpura, respectively, may also be present. Common lab findings in patients with cirrhosis include anemia, thrombocytopenia, elevated INR, hypovolemic hyponatremia, hypoalbuminemia, normal or elevated ALT, AST, ALP, or direct bilirubin, and creatinine elevation in those who also have concomitant hepatorenal syndrome.
So how do we screen and diagnose hepatitis C? The initial screening test for hepatitis C is the hepatitis C antibody test. This will be positive in most individuals with either an active acute or chronic infection. This could also be positive in those who have been infected in the past and then treated or whose immune systems have spontaneously cleared the virus. Something to note is that someone who cleared hepatitis C or has been treated in the past is, in fact, not immune to subsequent infection. And studies have even shown that they are less able to spontaneously clear a repeat infection than hepatitis C-naive individuals. In those with a positive hepatitis C antibody test, the next step is testing for the hepatitis C RNA level. If the RNA level is positive, it confirms that there is an active hepatitis C infection and provides an estimate of the viral load, which is helpful, as it gives a reference for monitoring treatment response. In patients with a recent exposure, it is possible to have a negative hepatitis C antibody with a positive hepatitis C RNA, since it takes about eight weeks for the hepatitis C antibody to become detectable after transmission. After the RNA level is established, hepatitis C genotype should then be determined by direct sequence analysis, which also helps guide selection of treatment. Hepatitis C exists as six main genotypes, each of which can be further broken into subtypes. Genotype 1A accounts for the largest proportion of infections in Canada. Now, let's talk about treatment. Once we have diagnosed hepatitis C in our patient, what should we do next? This is usually where a physician experienced hepatitis C takes over, which, depending on your community, could be a hepatologist, gastroenterologist, infectious disease specialist, or family doctor. First off, patients should be assessed for hepatitis C risk factors to estimate when they were infected and also to help them prevent transmission to others. You should also proceed with testing to rule out co-infection with other viruses, such as hepatitis B and HIV. You should also screen for hemochromatosis with a transferrin saturation. All of these conditions would require separate treatment. Next, assessment of liver fibrosis must also be done, especially in those without overt signs of advanced liver disease. The liver biopsy is the gold standard for testing for fibrosis. Non-invasive assessments can be just as useful. The FIB4 test is one tool that uses ALT, AST, and platelet count to reliably predict significant liver fibrosis in patients over 35. Transient elastography, also known as the FibroScan, uses ultrasound to measure liver stiffness and can also reliably predict fibrosis. Now, in any patient with cirrhosis, we should also address modifiable risk factors to try and prevent worsening of their liver disease. Diet and exercise should be assessed, as obesity and insulin resistance leads to hepatic steatosis and worsening fibrosis. Patients should also be counseled on alcohol use, which if possible should be stopped entirely if they already have cirrhosis. 
vaccination for hepatitis A and B in non-immune individuals should be done to mitigate other causes of liver damage, as should vaccination for pneumococcus. A thorough review of medications should also be done to prevent liver damage. This is especially true in patients with cirrhosis, where medications such as NSAIDs and doses of acetaminophen greater than 2 to 3 grams daily are considered hazardous, to name a few. Patients with cirrhosis will require screening for hepatocellular carcinoma every six months, and screening for varices should also be considered. People who inject drugs should also be counseled on harm reduction strategies to prevent potential reinfection after treatment and other complications. However, active drug use is not considered a contraindication to antiviral therapy. One of the main things to know about hepatitis C treatment is that it has changed dramatically in recent years. Traditionally, only interferon alpha-based therapies were used to treat hepatitis C. Treatment took almost a year and had a very low cure rate, with a sustained virologic response, or SVR, of less than 10%. Addition of ribavirin increased SVR to between 30 and 40%. Conjugation of polyethylene glycol to interferon further increased efficacy. Interferon-based regimens were, however, wrought with neuropsychiatric side effects, such as severe depression and psychosis, as well as having the potential to cause decompensation in patients with cirrhosis, which of course was a large proportion of patients with hepatitis C. This paved the way for the direct-acting antivirals, or DAAs. These act on multiple viral proteins, including NS5A and NS5B, which play roles in the replication of viral RNA and NS3-4A, which cleaves a viral polyprotein into individual proteins important in replication. DAAs were initially used in combination with interferon-based regimens, leading to improved SVR rates, but now are used on their own in combinations of two or more DAAs, with SVR achievable in only 8-12 to weeks of therapy. DAAs are used together in two drug combinations in order to prevent drug resistance. Cure rates are greater than 95% in the majority of infected individuals. However, this is dependent on genotype, history of previous therapy, and whether liver disease is compensated or decompensated. Other considerations that need to be evaluated are underlying renal insufficiency and a careful medication review to avoid drug-drug interactions with such medications as proton pump inhibitors, anticonvulsants, direct oral anticoagulants, and opiates. The side effect profile of DAAs is much better than that of interferon-based regimens, with very few patients stopping therapy due to adverse events. Therefore, DAA combination therapy is now the standard of care for all patients with chronic hepatitis C at any stage of disease. Liver transplant may be indicated before HCV therapy in those with decompensation and or hepatocellular carcinoma and these are best managed by hepatologists experienced in working with this population. Importantly, treatment with DAAs to achieve SVR in patients with HCV is associated with reduced risks of hepatocellular carcinoma, hepatic decompensation, listing for liver transplantation, and all-cause mortality. DAA treatment has also been shown to be cost-effective, no matter how advanced a patient's liver disease is. For a long time, the ultimate barrier to receiving life-saving DAA therapy was cost, with costs ranging from $45,000 to $100,000 per patient. Widespread access to Canadians was therefore difficult to justify. 
However, provincial drug plans at the time had many criteria for who would be eligible for treatment, with many requiring that patients wait until they develop signs of liver damage to become eligible. Fortunately, in recent years, all provincial drug plans were able to negotiate lower prices, allowing them to make GAA regimens available to all patients diagnosed with hepatitis C, regardless of their clinical characteristics. All right, time for a medicine minute. In 2020, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded to three scientists for the discovery of the hepatitis C virus. One laureate was Dr. Michael Houghton of the University of Alberta. With the foundational work put in by these scientists and so many others, we now know the face of this insidious virus and can do something to halt the progression of this disease for millions of people worldwide. Thank you for listening to this episode of the internet work entitled The Viral Delay. This episode was written by Dr. Mitchell Edwards, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Jennifer Fleming, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Kristen Morosi, general internal medicine. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Line. Sound editing by Nafis Hossein. The internet work series was created by Allison Line and is executively produced by myself, Sarma Rally and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at, at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.